Yo, what up? I was uh, at lunch today and had a really great conversation with a friend of mine. Um, and I have to say, I, I was quite, um, what's the word? Articulate. I don't like that word, but uh, meaning saying it about myself because it sounds a little cheeky. But um, I was talking about the state of mental health and addiction and some of the challenges that I see with the uh, continuum of care, um, resources available, what happens when someone raises their hand and said I need and says I need help or uh, they need to you know get they're in a bit of a mental health crisis or they just want to get some help with their uh, drug and alcohol use or depression, anxiety, ADHD of the like. And so you know one of the big picture challenges that I see is, having access to more resources and for people that aren't in the industry access to more resources just means services and outlets that provide um provide counseling that provide uh psychotherapy that provide uh what what am i go uh play therapy like all these different things that we can utilize for our kids and adults around mental health and addiction to try to get ourselves back together and and stay on the right path and not feel overwhelmed and all that good stuff. And so right now, one of the big challenges that I see is mental health is a huge focus now, uh, at least from the front of the room, TV, politicians, etc. And uh, people are talking quite a lot about it. They're talking uh, quite a lot about the opioid crisis. But there's a couple of things that really need to be addressed. Number one, um, being on the hospital side, realizing that just because someone says we cover mental health and addiction or behavioral health and addiction doesn't mean it's easy to get services. In other words, you raise your hand and say, hey, I want to quit using and doing drugs and drinking, whatever. You go to a mental health hospital and you realize if you don't have a mental health issue, quote unquote, or what we call a mental health primary issue, um, which means you lead with anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, etc. Oftentimes they can deny you. They say, oh, well, we don't detox off of we won't detox you off of drugs or we'll only detox you off of heroin, but we won't detox you off of methamphetamine. And so as much as we're starting to see a big push with offering and providing more mental health resources and services saying, quote unquote, it's a need, it's a need, it's a need. It's equally just as freaking hard to get the insurance companies to pay for it. The other big thing is traditionally speaking, particularly from back in the day day is they lock people addiction and mental health issues are a criminal issue. Usually people that struggle with mental health and mental health, behavior health, drug and alcohol addiction, they get in trouble a lot. Uh, Or they self-medicate with drug and alcohol. They end up in precarious situations where they're involved with the police. And the police do what they're supposed to do. They lock them up. But it's you're starting to see a shift. But the truth is, is that those people need help. They need services. They need counseling. They need housing. They need stability. They need jobs. And this is not just the people that are you know, on lower socioeconomic places. These are the functioning workers as well. We need more conversations about 
help and what it looks like to, to address your mental health, address your drinking and alcohol uh, challenges. And uh, we need access to funds to do that. Now, um, the other part of that piece is, let's say, for example, that they do what I think by they, I mean, let's say the government makes a bunch of laws, they make a bunch of money accessible, they make a couple laws that mean uh, insurance companies have to cover the full range of care. And let's say uh, you have a son or a daughter or a husband or wife or family member that says, I'm strung out on pain pills and I want help. He comes to a hospital, we say, hey, no problem. Here's five days of detox. We're going to give you not 30 days of treatment. We're going to give you 90 days of of inpatient treatment in a beautiful facility, all paid for. We're going to discharge you out and let you do three to nine months of outpatient services, partial hospitalization, IOP, intensive outpatient uh, services, counseling, therapy, etc. We're going to get you to go to 12-step meetings and all this fun stuff, all paid for. You're seeing a psychiatrist. You're seeing, you're getting everything the full range of care. And then they send them to the 12-step fellowships and the 12-step fellowships say, oh, uh, all you need to do is find uh, find your higher power and get off the uh, Suboxone or the Vivitrol or the Methadone or the whatever and you know get your stuff together. You're not really clean. You know, so that is a big challenge that I see with regards to the 12-step fellowship is although I'm extremely biased towards abstinence because I don't conceptually always understand or think it's necessary. It doesn't always conceptually make sense. I'm not talking about individual cases. I'm talking about conceptually that the way I get you off of dependence uh, on drugs, on a drug i.e. an opiate of, of, of the like, the way I get you off of those drugs is to put you on another drug like methadone or suboxone or Vivitrol that you're going to, you know, quote unquote, take for the rest of your life for the next five years. Um, however, I understand that when it comes to harm reduction and it comes to the possibility of that person overdosing, when it comes to the likelihood of them staying in treatment and uh, outpatient IOP like they're supposed to and go to therapy, they do have a better track record technically uh, when they're on some of these drugs, but it just I just really wonder, even if they're writing checks and even if they're covering all the stuff that the medical industry provides, psychotherapy industry provides, like what happens after the money runs out or the insurance runs out or the job runs out or you know, they end up in a situation where they don't go to therapy anymore or they can't afford the Suboxone anymore or just whatever the case may be. Like what happens when they say, oh, you're in therapy once a month and they got stuff going on because they haven't worked out their their deep emotional issues or done the done the work, which, you know, in 12 step is done through the steps, which is digging through all the crap um, and uh, developing a relationship with a higher power and learning to deal with these things on a regular basis. I just think of like, you know, when I got clean, man, I went to a meeting virtually every day 
for at least four years, and I would probably say years five to six, I was in anywhere from, uh, uh, I, I'd probably say, I'd probably say I was in four to seven meetings a week for six years. A meeting every single day, seven to ten meetings a week for four years, working steps, doing service, actively participating in my recovery. Um, and you know, when I went through IOP intensive outpatient, it was four days a week. We had to go to, to, uh, AA or NA, uh, on the weekends, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we didn't have any other option. I mean, they told us, look, you got six weeks here and you better plug into 12 step because that's it. And now even compared to back then, we do have a lot of services available. I just wonder like, what happens when you go out of town? What happens when you go on a uh, five-month study abroad like I did in South America? And how do you check in with people? Like I was going to meetings in South America that were in Spanish. I didn't understand what the hell they were saying, but I was still going to meetings regularly, two to three a week in South America when I was traveling around. Every time I've gone to Europe or uh, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, I've actually gone, been able to go to meetings. Now to me, it's fun doing that kind of stuff, but when I'm solely relying on replacement therapy, when I'm solely relying on psychotherapy, like what does that look like? You know, if I don't, at the end of the day, if we don't plug people into some sort of volunteer organization that, you know, is full of people that, have been there, done that, know what it's like to be addicted to something, not be able to, um, not be able to control, control your drug and alcohol use, how to stay married, how to stay in jobs. If we don't hang out with, with quitters in a sense, what are we going to do? Right? It just doesn't, I mean, it's, it's 100% a complicated, uh, topic. Now, the good thing is there is, there are more services available. It is moving in that direction. But the other thing I think about is, um, you know, why does it take so long? Why is it changing, taking so long to change? Well, if you look at lobbying, how much money is spent on lobbying our government from the, from the pharmaceutical industry, from the insurance industry, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on lobbying these politicians on making rules. Uh, when we talk about evidence-based treatment, I like evidence-based treatment. I think there should be more of it. But on the other end of that, who's funding the evidence? Who's funding the research to get the evidence? Usually, it's insurance, it's pharma, it's the medical field. Um, You know, these are these. This research is being done by state and federal institutions, Um, and I just feel like it's leaning. You know, it's medically leaning for sure. But a lot of our holistic volunteer organizations, our 12-step organizations, they're never going to spend the kind of money that it's going to take to to properly lobby our politicians to make rules to cover stuff. So this is the mission I'm on. This is why I say there's a high cost to anonymity is more people that have experience with mental health. Uh, mental health uh, and addiction need to stand up and say, I have gone through this. I've been there. Um, I 
have used these services. I need these services. I want access to these services. And we need to make rules or laws that help and pay for that. You know, there's no reason why a doctor is sitting in front of a patient saying that this patient needs 60 to 90 days of treatment and an insurance person on the other end of the phone says, I'll give you three weeks. Um, Now, on the flip side, the insurance business is a business. I believe in business. I believe in, you know, merit. And if it comes down to a business, a business shouldn't pay for something if they don't have to. It's just like taxes. Like, if there's a slew of tax deductions that I can take to pay less taxes, if I'm playing within the lines and playing by the rules, I should take those tax deductions. Same thing with insurance. Why should they cover uh, methamphetamine detox if they don't have to? Right? They don't have to because there aren't rules in place to do it in their business. They need to make profits. So just as much as I want more access, I want more of a normal conversation. I want... Um, I want to be able to have more open conversations about what is needed in our mental health and addiction uh, populations. Um, but I also don't want to sit around and complain about insurance companies because let's be real, complaining doesn't do a damn thing. It's not going to help anybody. If I sit around and complain, it's not going to do anything. We have to learn to work within the, um, work within the system we have. Right? We've, it is what it is. Complaining isn't going to do anything. Um, what I feel like what I'm doing is having as many conversations as absolutely possible about uh, mental health and addiction, opening those conversations in my community so I can be a resource to my community. And what I mean by that is my neighbor, the people that work in the apartment complex, the people I work with, people like friends and family I come in contact with. I want them to know that I have experience in drug and alcohol recovery and mental health. And then that way, when they or someone close to them is having an issue, they know that they have an advocate and a resource in their network, in their cell phone number that goes to their child's school. One of the dads has some help. And that's how I can be a personal um, asset to our community. And in, and in addition to that, trying to rally the troops and rally the people that have direct experience with drug and alcohol addiction and mental health, as well as the friends and family members who want to help advocate, and just ask for more, uh, ask for more coverage, ask for more things locally. Hopefully that trickles up to the state and up to the federal government. We're on our way 100%. Things are being talked about. The schools are talking about the need for social-emotional learning. The schools are saying the number one thing that we need to focus on is mental health. Um, And unfortunately, at the moment, we are having to handle, we're handling things at the crisis level. In other words, we're not putting our money in prevention because there's not enough. Ultimately, what I would love to see happen is we're addressing prevention um, from an educational perspective. Not only drug and alcohol awareness, mental health awareness, sex education, prevention, education, having real conversations about what really happens and not just saying don't do drugs and don't have sex. Prevention. Um, But as of right now, 
uh, we're kind of stuck on our heels. We have to wait until someone has a big major crisis, a suicide attempt, um, you know, an overdose for us to really, you know, do something about it. So ideal world, I want to be up front. I want to catch it up front when I have more services and more open conversations. But I just love having conversations like these. I love forwarding the conversation. Uh, I love hearing from people about their perspective because the the reality is I also want to see if my arguments hold water. I want to see if my angle and perspective uh, matter, if they're true, if they're true. And most of the time, just like everything else, the answer is both. Um, Not everybody is going to, you know, get value and benefit from 12 step. Um, But not everybody's going to be on, you know, a a maintenance therapy for the rest of their life either. So uh, let me know what you think. I'd love to hear back from you. Uh, holler at your boy on, uh, via email. Give me a post uh, or comment. And um, if there's ever any questions, if if I talk about something, there was actually some good conversation on Facebook when I said um, I did a podcast about how to uh, how to tell someone you don't drink. And uh, a couple of people commented and they said, "Well, what about just saying I don't drink?" And I said, "Huh, that's a good point." But I think in uh, so they asked a couple questions. I answered them back. It was great. And I think when it comes to answering the question uh, or telling someone I don't drink or how do you you know when someone says hey you want to go out for beers or here you want something to drink, it's not the first question you got to worry about. It's the second, third, and fourth question because um, people aren't always they don't always take no for an answer. Uh, and if you're like a lot of people that I know you know, having one or two or three beers isn't drinking anyway. So, um, anyway, that was just a good conversation. I, I, I thank you for the comments on Facebook and, uh, holler at your boy, drop me an email, Preston at kprestonmore.com and, uh, tell your friends, uh, holla.